0: And welcome everybody to the Sports Rivals. I'm Gary Thorne, we are delighted to have you with us. As you know, our purpose here is to preserve memories of the classic sports rivalries through the words of those who participated in them. They are the rivalries that are described by those from the inside out. Today, a little uh, different view on rivalries because we're gonna talk about a rivalry that doesn't exist anymore with the closing of the Berlin Wall when it came down. As far as swimming was concerned, one of the great rivalries ended, and that was the rivalry between the United States and the East German competitors. We're gonna talk today about why that rivalry existed in the first place with two of the world's all-time great swimmers. Rowdy Gaines joins us. He was at Auburn where he collegiately swam from 1978 through 81. He was the male world swimmer of the year back in uh, 1980 and had one of the great Olympics of all time. Uh, He won three gold medals, the 84 Olympics in Los Angeles and nine national and two Pan American titles. Rowdy Gaines at one point, maybe he'll say so again, was recognized as the fastest swimmer in the world and Rowdy's going to join us along with a friend of his. They've been friends for the last 40 years, and that is John Neighbor. John is also one of the all time great swimmers. His nickname came to be the Backstroke King. He swam collegiately at USC from 74 to 77. During that time, that USC swim team won four consecutive national titles. He was the World Swimmer of the Year in 1976. And in 76, competed in the Olympics in Montreal. The most dominating performance by a single team in the Olympics occurred that year in Montreal, and John was part of that. That swim team, the men's team, won 23 of a possible 30 individual medals. And John's contribution to that team was enormous. Four gold medals, one silver. And in all cases where he won the gold medal that year, he set a world record in all four events. So today, we are delighted to have two of the world's all time great swimmers with us, Rowdy Gaines and John Neighbor. And we will begin this, Rowdy, with you by asking uh, if you would look back as to the East German competitors and the rivalry that existed between the U.S. team, you and those competitors from east germany
1: well gary uh first of all it's great to be with you today and and of course as you said john is uh, an incredibly dear friend we and we talked about rivals i know leading up to it uh you guys asked me was there any kind of rivalry with john and and there wasn't because john literally came from a little bit of a different era he retired for before i even broke onto the scene in swimming so we really never swam against each other he was primarily a backstroker again uh he won that silver in the 200 freestyle but he was also an incredible freestyler I'm just glad that he retired before uh before (laughs) I started hitting the scene um but getting to your question I I you know I I think from our standpoint it was um it was so political, uh, uh, you know, the, you, you got to remember that when I was on on the top of the world scene and swimming, the Soviets were the evil empire, you might say. I mean, our president even called them that uh, at that time, Ronald Reagan. So it was really right in the middle of a, a very dark political time in our lives when it came to the Soviet Union and the Soviet bloc countries. Uh and I just felt like, um, you know, I was just going along with the ride as, as far as them being that evil empire. And we had heard whispers and rumors of the East German women. And John can certainly talk more eloquently about that because he lived it. Uh, and, um, and, and, I, and I felt like John and I going into this, this, uh, this great rival broad, uh, podcast that you have, it really was about the East Germans because I, I bet you John would say his biggest rival was an East German swimmer and Roland Mathis. Um, and then my biggest, uh, my biggest rival really was uh, an East German as well. His name was Jorg um, from East Germany who beat me at the 82 world championships, by the way. So uh, yeah, it was, uh, it was not a, it was not, it was not a friendly rivalry. We'll, we'll say that for sure. Um, until much later on, and I'll tell you about that a little bit later on. But I know John, you uh, you you lived and
2: breathed it for sure, didn't you? Oh, no question about it. Uh, but I I need to make a couple of points clear. Uh, the main rivalry was between the American women and the East German women. There were right. a couple of exceptions in the men's events, and that was the my backstroke role model was a gentleman named Roland Mathis, who won the 100 and 200 meters in Mexico City in 1968. And repeated that effect in 1972, and may, many said he almost beat Mark Spitz in the 100-meter butterfly, but he had a really slow start off the blocks. The bottom line is that yes, the East Germans were the were the power we had to beat, um, and the, the the American women suffered the the, the brunt of that because of the suspicions we had that the East Germans were cheating were later right. borne out to be true, and they were they, they had a, a government systemic plan to uh, to provide performance enhancing drugs to many of their athletes i never felt that roland mathis the backstroker was a part of that and so i felt i had to beat him you know straight up uh, but there were other swimmers from east germany that uh, uh were very threatening very intimidating and because their government handlers would not allow them to socialize with the americans there was this very clear-cut distance. Don't talk to them because they're not allowed to talk to you, and if you talk to them, you might get them sent out to the gulag. You know, So there, were, there was a, a, a distance that does not exist between the Americans and the Australians, for example. Right. You know, the Australians have a great swimming tradition and there's a great rivalry there, but uh, because they were different political systems and different languages, uh, the, the distance was much more profound. I should also note that uh, had the United States competed in the Olympics in 1980, we call them the boycott games, because Jimmy Carter insisted the Americans not attend, Rowdy Games could have won five gold medals at those games. I honestly believe it, Rowdy. You were great in the 100 and the 200. I think you even had a great 400 freestyle. Uh, So uh, Rowdy suffered um, the, the politics because of America's distance with the Soviet Union and at those games in 1980, East Germany won a total of 30 medals: 12 gold, 12 10 silver, and eight bronze, uh, beating even the Soviets at those games. But I think had America attended, it would have been a different story.
1: Yeah, I mean, John, I, I always admired your sportsmanship when it came to East Germans. I know that uh, actually, you know, we lost Roland Mathis, and you, uh, you had a, a very um, one, uh, an amazing obituary when you, when you talked about him, uh, that I read a few months ago, Roland Mathis passed away in December, didn't he, John?
2: Yes, you're correct. Uh, we got an email from his wife saying he passed away suddenly, but interestingly, he is, he was visiting Los Angeles in 2016 during the Rio Olympics. And he and I sat on my couch in the living room and we watched the backstroke races together. So that wow. disappeared, you know, as we're both retired. Um, and I consider him a dear, dear friend and, and a great role model. But, but, but when you were swimming, though, John,
1: was it like that? Did did, did you? You said no communication with these Germans. Was that
2: true with Roland too? Though, yeah, Roland Roland's English wasn't very good, and also oh. we also we knew that he wasn't allowed to talk to us. I, I actually in 2016 I asked him uh, because the East German national team came to California in 1974. For a USA uh, East German dual meet, and mm-hmm. we were told as a result of the nineteen seventy three World Championships, we were told that the East German women were going to beat the American women, and if the American men were going to beat most of these German men, but frankly, Roland Mathis's victory in the backstroke was almost a guarantee. So my coach, the the, the national team coach, said, "John, if America is to win the combined dual meet, you've got to beat Roland Mathis." Wow. That was where I I raced him, and and that was where he first lost after seven years of being undefeated in the backstroke. And uh, he laughed about it. He hugged me after the race, and he was very gracious about the whole thing. Um, So I have nothing but but respect for him. But the the rivalry was clearly there, and they were not letting us know what their training regimen was. And, in fact, many people suspected that uh, uh, their urine samples were delivered ice cold uh, out of the bathroom and people were wondering how do they do that? You know, but we were never able to get proof until the Berlin Wall came down. And the International Olympic Committee has an eight year statute of limitations for drug cheats. And so they weren't mm. able to go back in time and correct the historical uh, deficiency. And and American Shirley Babashoff could easily have won six gold medals at those games right. competing straight up. So she was perhaps the one who most suffered from the East German cheating, uh, and, and th- that was a shame. Uh, but, but an equal shame was the boycott of
1: 1980. And, and Gary, uh, I know you had mentioned uh, to John about that being, uh, uh, John's bragging about me, but you, know, you mentioned that, that John's uh, Olympic team was one of the greatest. It was, without a doubt, the greatest. Olympic team. And I would say because those East Germans, those rivals, there is no doubt in my mind, John's mind, anybody's mind, that they cheated, that they took performance enhancing drugs, some of them knowingly, most of them unknowingly, but they still took them, that our women's team would have been just as dominant as our men's team, if the East Germans were not there or they would have uh, competed cleanly. So I think combined, it was the greatest men's team in history. No doubt about it. They smashed them. They won 12 of the 13 gold medals. Um, and the guy that won the 13th, uh, won the other one, David Wilkie, trained in the United States. He's from Great Britain, but anyway, uh, and John can tell you a lot more about that team, but it it was, it was one of the reasons why I started swimming Gary, uh, was because of that Olympic team. I started my junior year in high school, um, Mm. which was the spring of 1976. Uh, I didn't know what I was doing. I couldn't do a flip turn. First race I ever swam was like nine minutes and 15 seconds in the 500 yard freestyle. Uh, but that summer I watched the Olympics and I watched John, um, and, uh, and that really inspired me to, to keep swimming. But we, we suffered through, we suffered through a lot as far as the, the attitude we had, um, toward the the Soviet bloc countries. Um, and it was sad because in the end, uh, like John, we became very good friends. Uh, I became very. In fact, I'm Facebook pal still to this day with Jorg Voitha from East Germany. Another guy that you know, like you, John, you didn't talk to Roland, I didn't talk to Jorg. Uh, now we're Facebook friends, and uh, and uh, and I, be, I became very good friends with a lot of those Soviet swimmers. I don't know about you.
2: Sure, Sergei Fesenko and uh, Vladimir Salnikov. Mm-hmm. But I have to. My favorite piece of trivia is that the the the, the dominance of the American male swimmers in '76 is the reason that today the bronze medal at the Olympics is not necessarily going to the third best athlete in the world. Right. Because in 1976, each country was allowed up to three competitors per event. And because we so dominated the IOC and the and the, the governing body reduced that number to two. So America <laughs> can only send two athletes in each event. And as a result, if we had the top three, that third guy as, as what wouldn't you say chase Kalish would have been a victim to that? Oh, I mean, there's no question.
1: The list goes on and on and on. I I think last year alone, John, the U.S. had eight of the 10 fastest swimmers in the world in the 100-meter freestyle, for example. Mm -hmm. So think about that for a second. The eighth-place finisher would have a chance from the United States that won't make the Olympic team. Will uh, would have had a chance to win a medal at those uh, at at the Olympics. So it's uh, yeah, it, it, it's it's the it's the dominance of our country, Gary, that is so amazing and so wondrous, and it really dates back to 1956. We have been the number one swimming country in the world since 1956, and I think a lot of it is because of you know people like John um, and that have established that tradition of excellence. Uh, that that just goes on through every single Olympics. John wow. started off uh, a backstroke dominance that, if you think about it, goes all the way back to 1976. To, I think we've won six in a row, haven't we, John, um, from the United if, States if, in the 100 and the 200 backstroke.
2: If you don't count the boycott games, I guess that's probably true. But, Rowdy, I have to ask you, we, let's not forget Mark Spitz. He set the bar in 1972, and – uh, the the commercial exposure that he enjoyed, I think, was a financial incentive to many that came afterwards. But Rowdy, I have to ask you this: you were swimming in 1980 and 84 before professionals were allowed to swim, and then the IOC opened the door, allowing mm-hmm. athletes to make a little money. And you continued right. to, shortly afterwards. And then, of course, you know, Matt Biondi and 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 uh, Tom Tom Jager, Jager. yeah, the door open. In yeah. your opinion, how important has that financial incentive been to America's dominance?
1: I, I mean, I think it, it it certainly has helped, John. John. I mean, if you, if you look at, at the biggest change in our sport since the days when you and I swam, from being in the pool, it's no doubt the dolphin kick. And that, that has changed the sport more dramatically than anything else. And then out of the pool, it's money. It's it's allowed those athletes to stay in the sport longer. And when you had the Soviet bloc countries, those rival of ours, um, they, are, they were already taken care of. Uh, that, that's one of the reasons why we decided to let pros in the Olympics, because not only what happened in 1972 with that controversy, but also because... Uh, uh, basically the Soviet bloc countries were pros. They were being taken care of by their government. So I think it, it definitely changed the landscape of the sport for the United States. Um, and it has helped athletes stay in the sport longer. I was one of the oldest swimmers in history to win a gold medal in 1984. And I was 25. And now that's the average age uh, for the Olympic team for men. So it's, uh, it's definitely the, the, the ability to stay in the sport longer has certainly helped a lot.
0: Guys, can I just ask? Because it's been you both raised it a number of times here regarding the uh, the use of performance-enhancing drugs by the Soviet bloc countries in the Olympics. For both of you, was this used as a, as an impetus from by yourself in the competition? Did it did it raise the adrenaline level, knowing that's what you were going against? And was it used by your coaches as a way of of maybe pushing you that that little extra routing?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think John can speak to it even more so than I I can because he was right in the middle of it. I was toward the tail end of it, but uh, but without question, it, it it inspired us to do better uh, because of the rumors and the whispers. And I, Gary, I, I got to tell you, it probably, as John said, I don't think it was as strong. In fact, it might have uh, been missing, not altogether, but not certainly not as prevalent uh, uh, for the men as it was for women. Um, and it's, it, it's kind of come out for that, uh, reason, you know, that the women have, uh, come out to be a, a lot more, um, egregious when it comes to using performance enhancing drugs, but it didn't matter for us because I think our coaches, I'll never forget at the 82 world championships, uh, which we were, you know, neck deep in, in the East German, uh, machine, uh, they told us that the East German men were cheating. They were cheating. So whether or not they were not, uh, they were or not, we we believed it, and it certainly it scared me. I got to be honest with you, it scared me because I was I was feeling like I was facing a machine, uh, and I did lose to Jorga Um and, and like I said in 1982, was who was from East Germany, but it, it comes this comes out that really I don't know about you, John, but it really
2: comes out that the men were not were not doing it as much as the women. Um, I, I think uh, the, the drugs they were the East Germans were being given in the 1970s had a greater effect on the women than it did on the men. I don't know that the men used it less often or took smaller doses, but I know it had less of an impact uh, because the East German men were not as dominant. Um, now, Rowdy, wouldn't you have to admit that China is suspect of similar cheating? So Certainly China was in the 90s. So
1: all those East German scientists, you know, a great movie that that your audience might love and certainly goes back to John. John's even in the movie. It's called The Last Gold. Gary, it's a really cool movie of, of that whole East German movement in 1976 and the Americans winning that only gold medal for women in those 76 Olympic games, a 400 free relay, which is a, a miraculous. Everybody talks about the Jason Lezak relay in 19 or in 2008, um, which was cool, obviously. Um, but I think uh, equally as impressive and, and dramatic was that 400 free relay victory by the U.S. women, the only gold medal they won in those Olympics. But, um, but you're right, John, those East German scientists, after the Soviet bloc countries uh, went bankrupt, for lack of a better word, uh, moved to China, and that China machine certainly cheating came out at its highest in in 1994 at the World Championships, where uh, our American women and the rest of the world faced those same exact things that happened in the 70s um, with the East Germans. So it's it's really sad that that continued. And to be honest with you, I. I don't think it's ever stopped. I'm not sure it's China, but I, I know there are countries out there cheating. But it's it's a lot different, Gary, than it was back in the 70s where you took steroids and the testing wasn't sophisticated enough. And there's a lot more microdosing going on and, and just less – it's a much more less chance of, of getting caught. Um, and uh, I think uh, I
2: think it can – certainly has hurt not necessarily our sport, but all sports in general. Mm-hmm. Yeah, when the public when the public loses confidence in the results at the Olympics, they'll begin tuning out. And that is a real concern and the IOC has invested heavily in what's called WADA, the World Anti-Doping Agency, and they do regular out-of-season testing and every athlete has what's called an a a, a, a competition passport, which basically means they have to let the authorities know wherever they are. Uh, so that they can be tested randomly and, and, and as a surprise within a 24-hour period. And most recently, a Chinese Olympic champion swimmer uh, has been uh, uh, caught and punished. Yeah. Uh, so it's that right. is a real issue. But but here, here, here's one other point, Raddy. I have to ask this. In 1976, the American men and American women Olympic teams had a training camp in different locations. And the American men were optimistic and they were very positive. And the American women were very sad and depressed and and, and intimidated and had those. So I don't teams, blame them, though. Right. I don't blame them. I don't blame them. But had those two teams trained together, I believe that the American men would have boosted the, the, the outlook of the women, not necessarily to beat every East German, but would have had a better result. And now, Rowdy, don't the two teams train together?
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah, everything is together, very much. In fact, even in training camps, the men and women certainly swim in the same lane sometimes. Katie Ledecky obviously swims right there with the men in many circumstances. So, yeah, they and, do swim together.
2: And that's a good thing. That, because Yeah, it's, it's a great I thing. I noticed as dominant as we were in 76, the relationship between the American men and women is like big brother, little sister, or big sister, uh-huh. little brother, and it's uh-huh. wonderful. And I think that is a lot of the reason why the Americans do so well at the Olympic level.
1: Yeah, no
0: doubt. There's a question I've wanted to ask both of you a little off the mark of what we've been talking about. I've always marveled at what I refer to as sort of the singular sports, even though you are clearly competing with people you, you can see at the time and you know where they are in the lanes, et cetera. But I've always felt like running marathons and swimming how much of that is competing against yourself in, in events?
2: Uh, Gary, I'd say you race against the clock in workout, and when you're in a meet, you race to win. Mm. Uh, in the 60s and 70s, most of the world records occurred not in the Olympic Championship final, but in national, national meets and other meets. And then at the Olympics, it's more strategic. Uh, that may have changed a little bit. And I know that most athletes train uh, with, with, a, with a biological clock in their head. I certainly mm. did. Um, and, and to be honest with you, the, the, the world public has gotten so accustomed to the fact that the Americans or the, the sport of swimming sees more world records fall than any other sport uh, in the Olympic level. And that's because we are focused on the time that little yellow line that Rowdy yells at during the broadcasts, you know, that's a real indicator. And the swimmers have that in the back of their mind.
1: Yeah. The, 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 the clock is the swimmer's best friend, Gary. It, it's a sport that really revolves around the clock in so many ways, especially in training. You talked about swimming those millions laps and stuff that, that John and I did, uh, not a hundred percent of the time, but consistently it was about the clock. I, I, I could, I'll give you a quick example for me before the Olympics in 1984, up, up until about six months before the Olympics, I could swim the race that I imagined in, in 1984. And I could swim that race in my head without a stopwatch. I'd swim the race and I would stop the watch in my head. I, first of all, I'd start the stopwatch, but I wouldn't look at it swim the race and I stopped it within two or three tenths of a second every single time of the goal time that I wanted to swim in the Olympics it's just because I knew internally that internal clock that John talked about that biological clock was so critical and yes you race to win at the Olympics no question about it Um, but there have been times where you know swimmers do great in their times and that can be a, a a huge joy, just as much as it means
2: as winning gold medals and blue ribbons, not at the Olympic level, but certainly at any other level. And most coaches will tell their athletes, ignore what's happening in the lane next to you focus on your own lane. But I will say this, Gary, swimming is not an individual sport. hmm. You cannot train 12 months a year by yourself. This, this current COVID, you know, shutdown, swimming pools are closed. And athletes find themselves alone, and I don't, I, I don't know about you, Rowdy, but it would have been impossible for me to push my body as hard as I had to if there wasn't somebody in the lane next to me or touching my feet behind me, pushing me hmm. or, or urging me on. And I honestly yeah. think it's a real team sport. It is.
1: It is very much a team sport. And that, and that leads us back to the point of rivalries. You know, when you're talking about rivals, and because it's such a team sport, Gary – that's why East Germans were the bitter enemy. That's why the Soviets were the bitter enemy, because we needed that rival. We, I did anyway. I had to have that rival um, that ended up being Australia in 1984 for me, because the Soviet bloc countries boycotted the Olympics. But on the men's side, it was really all about Australia, and Australians have really been consistently our biggest rival throughout history i mean certainly the soviet bloc countries during that period of maybe mid-60s to mid-70s or even early 80s but australia has been the, the biggest rival now it, it's different as john said because it's a friendly rivalry uh you do talk to the, you do talk to the other athletes but trust me it it, it is a true true rivalry in our sport
0: mm. Guys, since you mentioned that, I can't let you go here. Uh, are the Olympics going to be changed by what's happening for the Tok- Tokyo Olympics with the with the pandemic and discussions about limiting the numbers of people who maybe participate or certainly come to view and maybe having to have separate venues? What do you think? Where do we end up with the Olympics after this pandemic?
1: I don't know what John thinks, but but I I, I say it. it I, I think it's. It is going to look different, but I think the world is going to look different going forward, Gary, don't you? I mean, mm-hmm. everything's going to be a little different, and uh, we're going to have to accept some things that we couldn't imagine um, happening three months ago. But, uh, but I, I, I honestly, in my heart of hearts, think there is going to be an Olympic Games next summer. I don't have any doubt in my mind. I, I have nothing to base that on except my heart. Um, And I think it's going to be the greatest Olympics in history. I really do, because people are going to be starving for it. They're going to be um, so excited to hear those athletes' stories um, and and the trials and tribulations they've had over the last year. Uh, And and people are going to tune in. And whether or not there's going to be a crowd there or not, I I just don't know. I have no idea. But I, I, I do believe there is going to be an Olympic Games. I don't know about you, John.
2: I don't even know when I'm going to be able to go out to dinner in in my hometown of Pasadena. Uh, There's there's so much. (laughs) Uh, But I will will (laughs) guess this. This I will guess. Um, I heard that the most thrilling moment in Olympic swimming history was when athletes walked into the 2000 Sydney Olympic Arena and noticed there were 17,000 seats available for spectators. I mean, I, I never swam in front of an audience larger than three or four thousand. And when you see seventeen thousand bleachers and you know that they're going to be full for the gold medal, that's a real rush. And, and is. Just, just as Rowdy imagined his race with a stopwatch in his hand, every night when I go to bed, I would imagine my Olympic backstroke race. And part of the imagination included the thunderous roar from the crowd. And COVID may force that crowd to be socially distanced and may force swimmers to swim in front of a crowd that's smaller than they would hope. And that is a real emotional downer for me. That doesn't mean they won't do well, they'll still wanna win, and it'll still be a very important victory. But to me, the emotional impact is lessened when the crowd isn't there. If a tree falls in the forest and there's no one there to to see it, it doesn't make any noise, I guess we're gonna find out.
0: Yeah, yeah, good point. Guys, I I really, uh, you've done it again here. You've run through the time on us uh, and I could sit here and listen to uh, the stories and both of you talk about these matters uh, forever. Uh, we are deeply appreciative. Uh, John and Rowdy Gaines, two of the world's all-time great swimmers and obviously promoters of, of their sport and of the Olympics in particular. Uh, just thanks a million. Thank you for sharing the stories. Thank you for talking about the, the rivalries both with the East Germans and others. Uh, it's been a great joy to uh, it's been a great joy to listen as a fan, and we really appreciate it. Thank you very much. That is going to do it. It concludes another chapter of these sports rivals. You can learn uh, more about us on other episodes. You can log on to thesportsrivals.com. You can join the conversation, questions and suggestions for our future shows. You can also follow us on Instagram at the sports rivals, on Twitter at rivals underscore podcast, and on Facebook by searching for the Sports Rivals podcast. Again, our thanks to Rowdy and to John and to all of you. Uh, Just a, a great discussion and a wonderful time to hear these two great athletes. Thank you all for joining us. And remember, it is the rivalries that make the games.